Shout out to top tier patrons Phil Dixon and Anushka Maiton for supporting the show. If you want to support the show from as little as £1 a month and get benefits like bonus episodes, head over to Patreon and look for Demystified by Ashley Styles. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. June, 1854. Atop High Rock Hill, outside the sleepy town of Lynn, Massachusetts, a great event is unfolding. The Second Coming of the Messiah. A promised time for Christians the world over. But the way it's happening, none of them expected. In a workshop built atop the hill, a machine sits still, sleepy. But soon it will move, and when it does, it will herald a new era for mankind. One where science and faith will march hand in hand into the future. The prophet who spent over nine months preparing for this day is John Murray Spear. Spear is a man on a mission, a mission from God. But not just God, no, no, he's got some big names in his corner. A Bostonite, he was a member of the Universalist Church of America. He studied theology and was a minister in 1830, and developed a sparkling reputation. He advocated women's rights, labor reforms, and was a staunch abolitionist in the time before the Civil War. He even helped expand the Underground Railroad, the organization helping runaway slaves escape to a more enlightened area. By even today's high standards of civic morality, the man was what you would consider an upstanding citizen. But despite all of this, he saw himself as destined for more, possessing a higher purpose than he was able to see. He just needed some time and some space. So he quit the Universalists. In 1852, we started to dabble in spiritualism. We've talked about it before, but today we're going to be introducing it properly. It was a movement that had its heydays from around 1840 to 1920 in Europe and America, believing that not only did the dead never really leave us, but that they could and would reach out to the living. And this very thing happened to Spear. One day he received a contact from the other side and his life changed forever. One at first, then two, then more, until he was being addressed by an entire congregation of people. The Association of Electrizers. All famous figures, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Quincy Adams, Benjamin Rush, even his own namesake, John Spear. All of these souls of departed leaders, philosophers, and scientists told him that he had one goal he needed to dedicate himself to, to utterly devote his life's work to. He would be the father of the Messiah, the herald of the second coming of the Lord. Now at this point you may be thinking, well alright, sounds a little out there, but I've heard stranger things. Hold on, because it gets weirder. When the group of spirits, which he called the Association of Electrizers, told him he was to father the Messiah, they didn't mean literally. Oh no, he wasn't going to conceive the second coming. He was going to build the second coming. The spirits told Spear he was to use technology to usher in a new era of spirituality by combining the two new powers of mechanics and fresh spiritualism. He and a group of loyal followers moved to the town of Lynn, Massachusetts, and set up shop in a shed atop High Rock Hill. There they set to work, building a machine that would house the soul of Christ and be used as a vessel for new life. When the machine was complete, the Lord would be birthed into it, and from it he would usher in a new utopia. They called this machine the New Motive Power, and it took nine months to complete. A plethora of metals, zinc, copper, some powerful magnets, wood, including a former dining room table. What the machine looked like is hard to describe, 
the drawings of it remaining a few and far between. Cones positioned like ears, a glass bell jar in the centre housing what might have been a brain, copper balls dangling from wires or threads. It was large enough, anywhere from the size of a child to the size of a dining room table. What it was shaped like, well, it's up to your interpretation of how far anthropomorphizing can be done to something that is seemingly a random collection of bits and pieces, but the work was tireless, and after those nine months it was complete. Not only that, but the gestation had finished. One of Spear's followers had been chosen to be the new Mary and prepared herself. After a two-hour ceremony that involved several people, the woman birthed the soul of the Messiah into the machine. And then, slowly, it moved. Supposedly. As before, the machine wasn't exactly person-shaped, so what constituted movement was a matter of debate. But all present agreed it had moved, which meant that the plan was in motion. Now they needed to raise the messiah. But the child fared poorly. It wasn't moving nearly enough, so a change of scenery was organized and the new motive power was taken to another town, Randolph, New York. Here's where the line was drawn, however. You see, not everyone was on board with Spears' plan. While spiritualism was all the rage, few outside of his group believed that he was correct with the electrolyzers, or that it was his destiny to create a mechanical messiah. In fact, many people thought that this was heretical, a torrid blasphemy. The man wasn't creating absolution, he was creating an abomination. So, the story goes, an angry mob stormed his workshop and destroyed the new motive power, torn to pieces, scattered to the four winds. But some say it survived spirited away out west before the mob could kill the child. At any rate, Murray's ambitions to ring in a second coming ended with the death of the machine. He went back to being a spiritualist, still in contact with his association, and worked as a writer. At the behest of the electrizers, he wrote a controversial document on the emancipation of women alongside his new wife, Carolyn Hinckley. He retired, again at the behest of the electrizers, in 1872 and died in 1887. So what happened on the 29th of June, 1854, in a shed in Massachusetts? Was the new messiah really conceived? Was this second coming delayed in New York? Or is the machine merely biding its time? Today on Demystified, we take a deep dive into spiritualism, and we look at what might be the most prime example of it, John Murray Spear and his god machine, the new motive power. Today on Demystified, we're looking at the new motive power of John Murray Spear and taking a deeper look into spiritualism in general. Now, the actual mystery of this mystery isn't whether the machine worked or not, despite me potentially posing it as such in the introduction. By now, it should be apparent that I'm an atheist skeptic. Of course, my stance is that it didn't work. I don't believe there was a spirit that could have possessed the machine, even if such a thing were possible. But I do love to suspend my disbelief for stories that I find fascinating. Hence why I wanted to do this topic. I first heard about it on Aaron Mankey's Law podcast way back when, so I always wanted to do a deep dive into it because it's so interesting. It also ties into spiritualism, which I've been considering doing a deep dive on for a while because it features in so many episodes. 
is partly a result, I think, of the 1800s being both the prime time for spiritualism and a time when record-keeping got far better with the proliferation of things like typewriters and telegraphs. We have lots of mysteries from that time, because that's one time when recording such things became far easier than it ever had been, but disproving said mysteries wasn't as easy as it would become. It's the height of the bell curve, as it were. If your communication is terrible, then the mystery can grow very powerful in a very small locality, but it won't spread or be recorded. If your communication improves, it can spread further, but the more it spreads, the more likely it'll run into somebody with the means or the gumption to solve it. Take Bigfoot, for example. Starts as a folklore character, then you get the terrible grainy photographs and videos, but then as recording technology improves and the internet allows every sleuth to disprove it, fewer and fewer recordings of Bigfoot show up. We're at the midpoint when this story takes place. Someone like Spear can proliferate his ideas, but not face too much scrutiny on them. Let's begin by discussing spiritualism before moving on to the main man himself, because he's also quite an interesting person. Spiritualism was a movement that was at its peak between 1840 and 1920, but started before that and, depending on your definition, has not ended. The basic premise is this. Spirits, that is, the souls of the dead, exist, and they can talk to us, and that they want to talk to us. Every other facet of it varies from group to group to person to person. Some, like those invested in discovering Shambhala from our Shangri-La episode, believe the spirits could take the form of wise masters who could impart ancient knowledge. Others, like a certain jungle explorer from our Percy Fawcett episode, may have believed that its secrets could show you the way to hidden cities. But while spiritualism did have big players in the movement, most notably the Theosophists, a church, and I use that term very loosely, founded in New York in 1875, it was most often practiced on a personal level. Now, most spiritualists were drawn from the upper and middle classes of European and American society, including some big names you'll have heard of, Mary Todd Lincoln, Charles Dickens, Marie and Pierre Curie. And it had its skeptics too. The most famous falling out between Harry Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle was over spiritualism. You see, Doyle, the celebrated writer of the Sherlock Holmes novels, was deeply interested in spiritualism, especially after losing his son in the First World War, although he was into it long before that. Harry Houdini, the famous magician and ardent skeptic, in part learned magic so he could debunk those who claimed spiritual powers. He was interested, but considered mediums to be human leeches, his words, cashing in off of dead people's grief by charging exorbitant fees to commune with the dead. Doyle and Houdini had been good friends, but Doyle became convinced that Houdini could do actual magic and was trying to debunk other spiritualists for personal gain which infuriated Houdini, who had always made it very clear that his magic was just an illusion, tricks only meant to entertain, and that spiritualists were nothing more than charlatans. But before the greed of mediums had hardened his heart, Houdini had also been fascinated by it. Most people were, and to be honest, a lot of people are to this very day. Mediums were the rock stars of their day, charging massive prices for shows, going on tours, using their powers to entertain the wealthy, uh, for a nominal fee, of course. The first big mediums were the Fox Sisters, often credited with kickstarting the spiritualist trend. They claimed they could commune with the ghosts of the dead via rapping, knocking noises being made. After investigation, it was concluded that these rappings were made by tapping their feet and cracking their knuckles, and a confession in the 1880s by the sisters, as well as a withering condemnation of spiritualism by the sisters themselves, helped to seal their fates as mediums. But these were roundly ignored by the spiritualist movement, who to this day sometimes cite the Fox sisters as evidence of the supernatural. 
Common tricks of the trade included table turning, a kind of seance where you put your hands on the table and don't move and the ghosts move the table, automatic writing where a spirit compels you to write something, and trances, along with other things. And they were ten a penny. Every time one would be debunked or make some mistake on stage exposing them, another would pop up. Despite most spiritualists being middle class and upwards, some of the more famous ones came from modest backgrounds, because that obscurity helped to hide their tricks. The story of a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere where the girl channels the spirits of the dead is common, and much harder to disprove than a room full of sceptics baying for blood scrutinising the motions of a medium right in front of them. Of course, these days we like to think we know better. Many of the tricks used by spiritualists were debunked at the time, and we understand them even better now. Studying table turning produced our knowledge of the idiomotor effect, wherein you can move things without knowing. This is how a Ouija board works. You're actually moving the planchette subconsciously. It's not a ghost, it's your hand. The effect is what makes you think you're not moving it, but you are. Many psychic predictions are done by a process called cold reading, or its sister act hot reading, wherein seemingly innocuous statements are used to gather information about a person, again using subconscious, tiny physical reactions to things being said, which are then used to produce equally vague declarations or messages which seem highly personalised. To be honest, I fully agree with Houdini. Whilst it's a lot of fun to entertain the ideas of spiritualism, both the tricks themselves and a little bit of the philosophy, the obsession people can have with it is very dangerous to both themselves and others. For instance, take the human leeches profiteering off of grief by charging top dollar to tell someone that their grandma says hi from beyond. If you did it for free, I'd say it was a strange kind of bereavement service, but when have you ever seen a psychic offer their service for free? And what about when mediums insist they can find missing people? For every one time they get it right, there's hundreds of times they get it wrong, and in some cases lives could be on the line. So as much as I find the idea interesting and would love to see a psychic in the same way I'd love to see a magician, I abhor the fact that people spout it as genuine and make money off of it. And I respect a magician that makes cash off of his grand illusions. It takes talent. But if that magician convinces the gullible or the vulnerable that he really can do magic, well, shame on them. And this was all a big part of spiritualism, by the way. Seances, mediums, psychics, the whole nine yards. It went as small as the individual level, people having strange experiences that they couldn't explain, to as big as whole movements and churches founded on those ideas. The religious elements of spiritualism are quite interesting too. Some considered it to be its own religion, and to that end, certain religions themselves, like theosophy or some of the spiritualist churches, formed out of the various movements. Others, like the main character of today's story, considered their movements to be denominations of other religions, like Christianity. Both perspectives were bolstered by the competition between spiritualism and yet another paradigm, and one that won out in the end. Evolution. Yep, despite the man who independently came up with the theory of evolution, Alfred Russell Wallace being into it, many spiritualists were wary or rejected evolution by natural selection. Now today we know that evolution is how humans came to be. All life shares common ancestors and genetic mutations that occur randomly lead to the process of natural selection, where things like changes in the environment lead to certain creatures going extinct and others evolving. But if your entire worldview revolves around the idea of a soul, what happens when somebody like Charles Darwin posits that a man and an animal share common ancestry? Do animals have souls? Can they be contacted? And will our future descendants have grander souls than ours if they evolve? So evolutionary scientists spend a lot of time debating spiritualists, or in some cases as attempting to square the circle and marry the two, due to the rising popularity of both theories. 
Evolution had the support of the scientific community, but spiritualism had the appeal of being a gateway to vast psychic powers or hidden knowledge. The spiritualist movement fragmented in the 1930s between those who wanted to pursue it as a religion proper, the various churches, those who wanted to pursue it as individuals in the more original, unorganized style, and those who wanted to study it in a kind of scientific manner. I refuse out of principle to not caveat that because most of the spiritualist scientists don't actually adhere to the scientific method when it comes to things like burden of proof or peer review. While some organizations like the Society for Psychical Research, founded all the way back in 1882, have actually exposed fraudulent mediums, not all are so sincere in their research. So it survives today under many different banners, but there was once a time when spiritualism was taken very seriously in mainstream society and culture. Today we picture the cheesy psychic turtleneck and headset microphone. Yes, I'm getting a name. It's a B name. It's a Brian. It's a Brendan. It's a Billy. It's a Millie. It's a Michael. Yes, it's a Michael. But at one point, the most powerful people in the world paid top dollar for this morbid entertainment. So here we are. The debate that perhaps best exemplifies what this podcast is all about. The historical mystery. Spiritualism is to me the prime example of what I seek to do here, investigate historical mysteries with the evidence we have today and see what we can make of them. It's the battle of myth versus evidence. Sometimes the evidence can't conclusively prove something, like the case of the Lost Roanoke Colony, and sometimes it absolutely annihilates the mystery, like my sandbagging of the Bermuda Triangle. Spiritualism thrived in an age where people wanted badly to find answers to the great questions of life, Old ideas about the paranormal, the supernatural, the mythological, are those things that existed beyond our ability to sense, and it ran headlong into modernity. Hard science, like evolutionary biology, which sought to dispel the idea that there was any component to a person that couldn't be scrutinized. And in some cases, like Arthur Conan Doyle or Harry Houdini, something gave and one overcame the other. But in the case of today's story, the two combined, and the results are almost too strange to be true. Now we discuss the new motive power and its inventor, John Murray Speer. Speer was born in Boston in 1804, and from a young age both he and his brother were interested in theology. They studied it, and in 1830 he was ordained as a minister of the Universalist Church of America. His early life was defined by several endeavours that to me make him a pretty stand-up guy. He was a social reformer. He championed labour reforms, women's rights, and the removal of the death penalty, all of which, even in northeastern America, were at the time not exactly the easiest sells. He was a staunch abolitionist, as many, but certainly not all, preachers were at the time, and he helped to expand the Underground Railroad in Boston, helping escaped slaves be freed. He also organized the first universalist anti-slavery convention, so, by all accounts, a stand-up guy, and his story might have ended there. It could have, maybe it even should have, but it didn't. Because you see, John Murray Spear got into spiritualism. How he heard about it, I don't know, probably how most did, through someone or the general pop culture of the time. It was the late 1840s or early 1850s, so the start of the movement proper. Spear was something of an early adopter, you could say. But boy, did he adopt. What we do know is that in 1852 he broke his ties with the Universalist Church, to which he had given so much of his life already. You see, they weren't so keen on his insistence of being in contact with the Association of Electrizers, a group of spirits he claimed were contacting him on a regular basis. It was a veritable who's who of American thinkers. Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John Quincy Adams, Benjamin Rush, a signatory of the Declaration of Independence and Surgeon General of the Continental Army and a prominent scientist, and John Murray, after whose spear was named, 
one of the founders of the Universalist Church of America. So two presidents, one famous inventor and political figure, another famous scientist and political figure, and a famous theologian who was the founder of his former church. It's not surprising that not many people believed him. But some did. Speer developed a small but dedicated following of his own after leaving the Universalists. They relocated to the town of Lynn, Massachusetts in 1852 and set up shop in what has been described as a shed on top of the local High Rock Hill. I imagine it was more of a workshop than a shed, given what went on inside, but that's details. And what went on? Well, the Electrizers had given Speer his raison d'etre. He was to bring about the second coming of Christ by creating a mechanical body for the Spirit of God to live in. A new Mary, one of Speer's female followers, would birth of the Spirit and birth it into the machine, which would then act as a body for the Spirit. After the spirit took some time to grow from baby to child to adult, it would be able to communicate, and it would share with humanity the secrets needed to turn the world into a utopia. So that was Spears' job, and he said about it. It's pretty difficult to describe what the thing ended up looking like because there's several competing drawings of it, but here are some of the most common features. The first is the inclusion of a dining room table in the design. The platform supports a lot of other bits. Then there's copper balls hanging from... Threads? Wires? It's hard to tell. Their motion, though, is what was supposed to be used to gauge the power of the machine. Some show things that look like cones that you would use to hear through or speak through, for which purpose I'm not sure. Brass cogs, glass bell jars, scales, random bits and bobs, all for some purpose or another. Communing, receiving spiritual energy, directing spiritual energy, storing spiritual energy... It's difficult to conceive the logic behind any of this, but remember, Speer was having his lines fed to him through an earpiece, so to speak. He was utterly convinced in his own destiny, and so he had total faith in the design being given to him by the Electrizers. So when they told him, hey, at this bit, he just did. And this was the kind of spiritualism that's very hard to disprove. You can call out a medium for their shoddy tricks, but if somebody can hear voices in their own head, you can tell them it's not real but whether they believe you is on them. I won't claim to assert, by the way, that Spear had X, Y, or Z mental health issue. I can't know that, but it is clear that he was convinced. In 1854, it was ready. On the 29th of June, the new Mary gave birth to the Spirit of God and it went into the machine. And the machine moved. So they said. What constituted motion very much varied from person to person. It's said that Spear went and got the townsfolk to check it out, and wouldn't you if your life's work was finished and your plan had succeeded? But the townsfolk were unconvinced. Sure, that ball looked like it moved. A little. But a ball dangling on a thread will move if there's even a slight breeze. Are you sure that it's not just us opening the shed door creating a draft? It was the sort of thing, I think, where it was enough to have Spear and his crowd fully convinced, and everybody else absolutely not. Yes, the burden of proof at work. For Spear, the bar was so low, anything would have looked like success. But they didn't feel like the location was working out. Time was passing, and the expected surge of spiritual energy wasn't materialising. Spear had anticipated this. He'd been told that it was the equivalent of baby Jesus and would need time to grow into adult Jesus. But he felt, for whatever reason, that Lynn wasn't the place to raise his Messiah, so they packed up and moved to the town of Randolph, New York, where disaster struck. Apparently, the locals had heard of his coming, and were none too keen on housing what some of them saw as an affront to orthodoxy, and destroyed it. Feel Frankenstein mob vibes. 
You see, despite the growing popularity of spiritualism, here we see the fact that A, not everyone was on board with it, and B, even those that were on board with it weren't on board with all of it. Spears' ideas could only really have flown in America at that time, a place with constitutionally guaranteed religious freedom. What he was saying, that he had birthed the second coming of God into what was supposed to be an automaton, would be blasphemy at best and heresy at worst. The kind of thing that, in 1600s Massachusetts, you'd be burnt at the stake for saying. But just because the Constitution guarantees your right to build a mechanical messiah, doesn't mean that the locals you show it off to are going to be happy about it. And so, the story goes, they smashed it. Now, the demise of the machine is where the trail goes cold. I found very scant sources for its destruction, and while some say it was an angry mob, others have said that Speer himself was disappointed with the results and dismantled it. What we do know is that Speer eventually recovered from this, but he felt it in the aftermath. He went back to writing, supposedly still influenced by the electrizers until his retirement in 1872 and death in 1887. Thus ended the life of John Murray Speer, abolitionist, proto-feminist, labour reformist, humane punishment advocate, and, if he was to be believed, the creator of a robot that housed within it the Holy Ghost. But the new motive power may not have ended in New York. In 2019 in Colorado, Miss Ackerman, of Greeley, Colorado, passed away, and supposedly had in her possession a very strange object. She was known to be a hoarder, and having no next of kin, her house was searched for objects to be cleared out. In it, under a sheet in the attic, the new motive power was found. Or at least an object like it, it's got a label on it that says New Motive Power John Murray Spear, and it looks like a lot of the drawings of it. Some antique experts have apparently dated it to the time period when the New Motive Power was built, so it could possibly be the genuine article. But, I'd like to disclose at this point why this isn't open and shut. The only source I could find for this was the blog of Dan Baines, a UK-based illusionist who was famous for a 2007 hoax involving fairies. Not to discredit the guy, but when I dug into his source for it, I found only a link to a Spanish blog that had a decently written article on Spear, but also some articles on your standard pseudoscientific crap. More like ancient aliens or conspiracy junk than any proper history. And no source for the 2019 find. Maybe I didn't see it, maybe I clicked the wrong source link that he posted, but my own googling couldn't confirm it. He did have pictures on his website, but again, the guy is best known for a hoax and is an illusionist by trade, so I wouldn't be surprised if he mocked it up. Fervent googling around the subject showed not even local news reports in Colorado about it, so for the life of me I just could not find a reliable source for any of that. Hell, the fact that I would believe that any of this happened at all is only because Speer is an attested historical figure, well known for his abolitionism and other civic activism. The sources surrounding him and his life are more rugged, the sources surrounding the new motive power, less so, the new sources surrounding the new motive power, even less so than that. So, did John Murray Spear really build a mechanical messiah? The history is very difficult to pass from what's basically folklore at this point. It's at the point where I can't even say for certain that he built the damn thing. Did it move? Maybe, kinda. Was it God moving it? No. And most importantly, did it survive and has it been found? 
My money's on no. Like I said, absolutely nothing in terms of corroborating sources for Mr. Baines's claim of a surviving model or the real thing. Nothing from news in Colorado itself, nothing from other news reports, nada. And I'm sorry I can't give more explanation for it, but this is in fact what the trail runs cold. Like I said, sources are scarce where they can be found, and I found basically no primary literature on it. Well, then where do we go from here? This is usually the bit where I would give the lesson of the story, but we've kind of already had it. Be careful who you listen to and believe. For those into spiritualism, indulge your curiosity about the world, but please don't buy into it at face value. There are lots of unscrupulous people out there trying to rip you off and separate you from your money. For those looking into history, make sure you check your sources. It can be tempting to be lured in by interesting stories, but so many of them just aren't true. From my own research, it appears that John Murray's spear in the new motive power is to some extent a true story. How much is true is impossible to gauge. I found lots of sources for its existence, fewer for any details, and only one source for a surviving model. So that's it then. Perhaps another great lesson is that if you're going to look into history and actually care at all about evidence, be prepared to be disappointed. I'm here to entertain, first and foremost, but I never want to do that at the expense of the central premise of me telling you things as they happened in history, to the best of our knowledge. I could have just sold you that bit about it being found intact in 2019 as being fully true, but that would have made it disingenuous. And I will get things wrong, and I will make mistakes, and I will try and correct myself when I make those mistakes. But the fact must always come first, wherever it can, ahead of the fiction, no matter how entertaining the fiction may be. 1800 spiritualists remind me a bit of modern-day conspiracy nuts, the Eric von Danikens, people who were so obsessed with the idea of something being true that when confronted with evidence to the contrary, double down and deny everything. On my weekly radio show over on Wizards Main Station, I talked a bit about conspiracies because they keep coming up in the news, mostly when someone who's bought into them does something dumb like burning down a 5G network tower because they think it's causing COVID-19. And this ain't the first time I've run into conspiracy theories doing this show, Eric von Daniken and the Ancient Aliens Theory back with the Nazca Lines episode. It comes with the territory when you're looking into historical mysteries. But as I said before, my goal here is to attempt to analyse these with modern evidence to find some kind of resolution. Unfortunately, that also means in the absence of evidence, a resolution isn't possible. So I'm not going to willingly misrepresent the history here. I'm not a real historian, only an amateur, but in that respect, I want to stay as true to the history as I can and demystify it, which means sticking to what I can prove, whilst discussing what I can't, but not putting my faith in it when the faith can't be justified. Hence my conclusions here. Did John Murray Spear, abolitionist and women's rights advocate of the 1800s, construct a weird metal and wood machine that was supposed to house the spirit of God? Probably. Did it work? Probably not. Does it survive today? Probably not. At the very least, I hope my exploration of spiritualism was interesting. Given how involved spiritualists have been in past mysteries, and probably future mysteries, this ain't the last we've seen of them, I think, but now at least we know a little bit more about where they came from, where they went, and the sorts of things they got up to. And I'm glad I've talked about this subject, because I think it's a very interesting story. It's a fascinating writing prompt for the creative types. But in the absence of verifiable sources and peer-reviewed evidence, I'm going to have to close the book on John Murray Spear and the New Motive Power. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting from Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. 
Follow us on Twitter at demystified underscore pod for updates. And support us on Patreon from as little as one pound a month under Demystified by Ashley Styles. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>